Linnaean. Linnaean. Linnaean Society. The Linnaean Society of, of London. London. Linnaean Society of London. Linnaean. Linnaean. Future. Future. The current rate of biodiversity loss is unprecedented and, to be honest, quite alarming. The rate is higher than it has ever been since records began. Conservationists and concerned citizens are doing as much as they can to protect this biodiversity and associated habitats. But is there anything else we can do as time runs out for so many species? Noah's Ark brings forth images of pairs of animals plodding two by two onto a single boat to escape a cataclysmic flood. If anything, the summer of 2021 has shown us the incredible destructive power of floods from Germany to China. Should we then prepare for an ark for all of Earth's biodiversity if all else fails? How do we do that and what would such a boat look like? Or will it be a boat? Should we, like Noah, start thinking about collecting and centralizing all biodiversity into a single storage in the hope of better days to come? In this episode, we talk to those who are trying their hardest to safeguard as much biodiversity as possible. Thanks to such efforts, there are teams out there on tops of mountains and bottom of lakes, collecting precious genetic material from endangered species. And if this is to be a survivor's game, do we know which species have the best chances of survival? And where will they go? Our guests today tell us how some species are taking matters into their own hands as they spread far and wide in the quest of a new home. Welcome to the Linnaean Society of London. If you know the extension of the... Please wait a moment. My name is Mike Bruford. I'm a professor of biodiversity at the School of Biosciences in Cardiff University, but I'm also interim director of the Frozen Ark Project, and I currently coordinate the UK zoological biobanking initiative called CryoArcs. The extinction crisis has accelerated to such an extent um, across the world that um, that we we realised that we needed something. Uh, greater and that the, the, the emphasis should be on all genetic material, not simply material for AI and assisted reproductive technologies. My name is Mike Bruford. I'm a professor of biodiversity at the School of Biosciences in Cardiff University, but I'm also interim director of the Frozen Ark Project and I currently coordinate the UK zoological biobanking initiative called CryoArcs. So CryoArcs is an initiative funded by the BBSRC. It is a cooperative venture between uh, a number of universities, the um, Natural History Museum in London, the National Museum of Scotland, and the Royal Zoological Society of Scotland, Edinburgh Zoo. Um, And it is basically aiming to bring together disparate collections of biological material for genetics and genomic studies um, across the UK for the first time. And the, the reason why we were compelled to bring it together was because there were a number of different biobanking initiatives being um, launched across the UK, but they weren't joined up. And we were worried that uh, what would happen is that we would end up with a disparate collection 
where there wasn't a single point of entry or query. Um, and our aim was to bring these different uh, initiatives together so that we would have a, um, a, a single coordinated biobanking sort of point of call uh, for people who are interested in using material for genetic and genomic studies. In what form is the genetic material? What do field biologists collect? We tend to be quite broad in the material that we collect because we recognize that for really highly endangered species, the chances of getting a high quality muscle sample or blood sample, for example, um, may be very, very low. We're even willing to accept fecal material because there are some species for which we're never going to get anything else. Um, and there is host DNA in there, even if it's in very, very low quantity and quality. And as technologies improve and our ability to, um, to enrich DNA extracts, there's every reason to believe that those samples will become valuable. They may be difficult to deal with, um, but they will become valuable. So anything really from even urine, preferably, of course, high quality, freshly collected blood or, or um, muscle tissue cells. So we have cell culture collections. These may be fibroblast cell lines, for example, that have been produced uh, in the past. We collect other forms of material as well, if necessary, like sperm samples. But predominantly what we focus on is the material that is going to be used to understand genetic diversity into the future and to be able to act as a reference point for genetic studies. The most important question is, what is the point of a genetic bank, of this cryo-arc, this huge frozen collection that gives researchers and conservation planners access to tissues and cells from endangered species and livestock breeds? We'll come to that question, but before that, we want to bring in the source of the most biodiversity on the planet, plants. There was a case where the, the last plant was on a cliff face and people did have to rappel down to get the seeds. Um, Collecting from trees is always challenging. And in some cases, we do employ tree climbers to, to go up and actually collect from the canopies. I know in, in some places, they've had to go out and dug out canoes to reach particular collections. In other ones, it was by elephant. Some places have helicoptered in. So pretty much any scenario you can imagine, we've, we've probably done that because we've collected from you know the poles to the equator and from sea level to altitude. So yeah, we, we've covered most environments. Eleanor, would you please um, introduce yourself to our listeners? I'm the senior research leader in seed conservation at Kew Gardens. Um, I'm based at the Millennium Seed Bank, which is actually at Kew's second site in Wakehurst in the Sussex countryside. Since many of our listeners would never have visited the Millennium um, Seed Bank, could you just describe visually what it is like? We're in an area of outstanding natural beauty, so they had to make the building fit into the landscape. So we're actually quite a low building with um, vaulted ceilings, and it, it's quite beautiful architecturally from the outside. Um, and there's a huge atrium in the middle where visitors can come in and actually follow the journey of a seed around the seed bank and see through the glass windows what, what everybody's doing in the labs to help conserve these species. The actual vaults where we store the seeds are underground um, because they're better protected there and it's easier to control the, the climate. Um, it doesn't take as much energy because we store them at minus 20 degrees. And so, so it's much easier to maintain that environment down there 
And also when they made this building, they, they built it to last for 500 years and to be able to store up to 75% of the world's plant species um, that have bankable seeds. And so, so there's a huge expansion space underground, like you could fit, I think it's around 40 double-decker buses down there to give an idea of the scale. And um, we currently have six walking cold rooms where the seeds are stored. And it, it's it's uh, it's bomb proof. It's radiation proof. It's flood proof. They they went the full doomsday on it. So um, mm. yeah, it's quite an exciting place to be. So what we do when the seeds come into us is first of all we dry them down um, to fifteen percent relative humidity because by drying the seeds you're extending their storage life, and then we put them in um, hermetically sealed containers, so airtight containers. And so that we can maintain that humidity um, without it changing when they go into the cold storage at minus 20. So those two steps, the drying and then the freezing, those are the two things which increase their, their shelf life. Um, so the seeds which we have can survive decades to hundreds of years in, in the bank. Why is the collection of genetic material so important? It is more, much more than this fantastical idea of bringing extinct species back to life if all goes south, isn't it? And it is about preserving genetic diversity. We know that the rate of, of extinction is, is very high. Um, I think we tend to be um, a little bit obsessed with whole species extinctions, whereas in fact, it's, it's much more severe than that because it's a drip drip effect that's happening across whole species. So even if a particular species is empirically not threatened with extinction, it may still be declining. And, and, and population sizes and populations and biodiversity is declining dramatically um, you know, at, at, at many levels. There was a study done by the Living Planet Index, I think it was a, a few years ago, that if I remember correctly, the numbers said that um, since 1980, something like 64% of animal populations have uh, gone extinct. Um, now, those are populations, not species. We tend to think about species as the flagships, but one of the things as a population geneticist I get concerned about is that we focus on the taxon as opposed to the genetic diversity. And, and that's actually a big problem. It's not only a problem with the, in the minds of the public, I have to say, it's a pro problem in the minds of the policymakers as well, who have consistently, um, ignored genetic diversity at below the species level in their in their planning uh, for conservation and this is something that myself and many colleagues currently are really really putting pressure on the cbd the convention on biological diversity to make sure they don't make the same mistake again during the current um, framework policy discussions that they're having for conserving biodiversity till 2030. and what is this mistake that you refer to there was a really worrying uh, trend in population sizes of um, Indian tiger populations in the Indian subcontinent. The Indian government, by a series of protection me measures, has turned that around, it seems. And so the numbers are increasing, and, and that is fantastic. Um, poaching you know, had really almost uh, extirpated some populations, but they turned that around. Um, but the, the Indian government and lots of other governments tend to think that's enough. What it turns out to be the case is that, okay, you may have solved the problem 
in the immediate short term by bringing the numbers back up, but by not addressing losses of genetic diversity at a local and a species level, you are storing up trouble potentially for the future. So for example, things like uh, diseases that may, may become more common in populations um, as, climates, as the climate changes, the, the um, resistance to those diseases may depend to some extent on genetic diversity. Um, and so in those circumstances, if a population gets hit by a, an epizootic, um, if it has uh, low genetic diversity, it doesn't matter how high the numbers are, if everybody's genetically the same. So um, this focus on numbers um, and is, 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 of course, important because it's the short, immediate term worry that everybody has. Populations can't recover if they go to zero or close to zero. Um, but uh, in the medium term, we need to be worried about genetic diversity as well, because the world is changing and it's changing very rapidly. And genetic diversity is one part of the armory that a population needs to be able to adapt into the future. Unlike animal genetic material, seed collecting has a much longer history, even if limited. Seed collecting has been a human endeavor for a long time since we, I guess, became agriculturists and farmers save seeds year after year after year. So, but this kind of saving, what were the reasons that this was done? Well, I think, as you say, you know, it is quite a human endeavor to collect and store and save seeds. Um, but it was increasingly recognized that this was just being done for agricultural species. So the focus of the Millennium Seed Bank was really to conserve wild species because it was, as you say, in 2000, it was already very well understood that these were threatened in the wild, but there wasn't really much being done to conserve them ex situ in this way by storing their seeds. So, um, you know, this was one of the well, the first global wild seed banks um, that was established with this remit of trying to help protect wild plant diversity around the world. As country governments are probably figuring out that in situ conservation chances are, you know, are narrowing, um, are they focusing more on ex situ uh, conservation like seed banks? Um, I think they are probably seeing the need more for the ex situ as a result of, you know, the the, the cost and, and the difficulties associated with in situ. I think ex situ should always support in situ. You yeah. know, you, you can't stop conserving in the natural environment because otherwise, yeah, there's what's the point in having a seed bank if there's yeah. no place left to put the seeds back into the wild. What are some of these research projects that Q has collaborated on where you have given some you know species you have to i don't know expand the genetic diversity in an area or something it really varies what the seeds are used for um so in that particular program it was adapting agriculture to climate change so material from a whole suite of uh, crop wild relatives was collected and then sent on to pre-breed as an international um gene banks around the world so that they could start understanding the properties of those wild relatives and which ones might be useful for using in future breeding programs, say for drought tolerance, salinity tolerance, those kinds of things which we know are going to become more of an issue as we move forward with climate change and its impacts. 
So yes, to ask you, why do we need to conserve crop-wild relatives of, let's say, our most important food grow? So a, a crop-wild relative is is basically it is a wild relative of one of our crop plants, but that what sets it apart is that it's never been through that domestication and breeding program that the crops that you and I know and, and eat and get in our supermarkets or our shops would recognise. And the reason that they're so important is that through that domestication process crops have actually lost a lot of their natural variability because they've been bred to be adapted to specific environments and um, particular conditions and and to have particular nutrition or yield status. Um, So the the wild relatives really um, are able to bring back some of that diversity into the crop through breeding programs. And because they're closely related, then, you know, it's quite easy to make those crosses and transfer some of those genes back into the existing crops. And the reason that's really important is that with climate change, um, you know, that the the environments in which these crops are going to be growing in the future will be different from, from what it currently is and what they've been designed to be adapted to. So we need to quickly um, increase their variability in, in order to cope with those changes. So here's a strange hypothetical question is that if there were to be runaway climate change, and let's say that only parts of the world remain habitable to most of the species, would you know which of the species would be able to su- migrate and survive? Like what niches would we look at that probably have a decent uh, possibility of survival? There are increasing number of studies that are combining genetics with um, ecological niche modeling, with climate modeling to try and predict what's going to happen in the future. In fact, we recently did something similar to that on Arctic breeding peregrine falcons, um, where we studied populations of peregrine falcons um, that, that migrate large distances from their breeding grounds in the Arctic Ocean in northern Russia, uh, sometimes as far as 11,000 kilometers down to Southeast Asia. And one of the things that we found was that, um, you know, if we looked at the effective population size, that's the number of genomes assorting in these populations, that they all declined dramatically. Um, and, um, and they declined dramatically because um, the carrying capacity of the summer breeding grounds, which they migrate to, um, would would diminish even further than it had already. And we found from the genomic data that it had already diminished substantially. Some of these Arctic breeding populations will go down to a very, very low effective population size and even go extinct. And we found that by 2070, one out of the six populations that we were studying in Northern Russia was, was, was definitely, you know, we was actually uh, predicted to go extinct. Uh, because it just runs out, it, it basically can't escape the climate envelope that it's been trapped into, and that every other population showed a substantial decrease in its effective size over over that period. That's up until twenty seventy. What other niches are most at risk, and is there a concerted effort? If we know that these are most at risk, then this is these are the populations that we really need to sample and preserve right now. The sort of poster child for climate change uh, disaster movies are the tropics because uh, one of the things that um, a lot of the modeling is telling us is saying that that uh, you know a lot of the rainforests 
will um, succumb to aridification over time, um, whether that be through forest fires, like we've been seeing equally, you know, ever, ever more frequently um, over the last several decades in Southeast Asia, for instance, or whether it be um, loss of habitat in, you know, and, and given that those rainforests, you know, contain 70% of the world's biodiversity, um, when you start losing those, then then the numbers become very scary indeed. But I think people are particularly worried about far north and far south and the um, and the, the, the tropical rainforest belt. If we were to consider runaway climate change and look at what are the possible areas that would be habitable or would be arable, uh, is this kind of in the scientific realm or it, does it impact your work in any way? but there is research out there looking at you know where we will be able to grow crops in the future and and the main the main issues seem to be it's going to be the unpredictability of of things like rainfall um drought events um changes in seasonality uh, increases in pests and diseases and that that's all going to impact yield so those seem to be the biggest issues that we're going to be facing. And there is some evidence that, you know, there might be a general northward move or, or away from the equator move um, of, of crops in terms of growing space. But then you get into questions around seasonality of water availability and, and shorter growing seasons, depending on um, where you are. So, so, yeah, you can model it. You can predict um given a, a crop's environmental tolerances where it should be able to grow. But then it's finding out if there's actually space to grow it within the, the envelope of area that it says it should be growing in going forward. Uh, do we know, can we identify any traits that would assist in species survival? Historically, of course, the climate has always changed. Because of that, species have been able to maintain a climate envelope just by migrating northwards or southwards, according to whether or not the temperature was increasing or decreasing, and, um, and, and maintain their climate envelope by physically moving. Now, historic, historically, that, that made sense because, you, you know, there wasn't massive land use change across the globe like there is now, but now we've cut off those escape routes. So um, that's that's a big problem. One of the reasons we're interested in migration is that migration potentially offers a route out for, you know, if you have long distance migrants, long distance migrants could potentially have greater flexibility when it comes to actually escaping climate envelopes that they find themselves in. And so that's, so understanding how um, those changes may affect migratory populations is, is one uh, area to, to, to look at and the variation in migratory behavior between individuals and the genetic diversity that underpins that is potentially very, very important. So while conservationists are collecting as much biodiversity as possible, species too are moving home and shifting their range to survive. So I was um, getting reports of a new species off the north coast of Tasmania, a snapper species which is you know, quite prized by the recreational fishing community. Um, I, as an, an ecologist at the time, wanted to look at the population dynamics of these new animals, where they were coming from, what they were eating, how they were fitting into the ecosystem. My name's Greta Petzl. 
and I'm a professor of interdisciplinary ecology at the University of Tasmania in Hobart, Australia. I'm also director of a centre called the Centre for Marine Socioecology, and that's a centre that's a collaboration between the CSIRO, our Commonwealth Research Agency here in Australia, and the University of Tasmania, and we work on all sorts of different uh, problems in the marine um, environment from a very interdisciplinary perspective. And are these observations of uh, species that weren't there many years ago, are these accelerating? Wherever we go and look um, around the world at, uh, you know, patterns in species distributions, we can see that at least be between 25 and 85% of species look like they are already shifting and responding to climate. So that's some pretty, um, you know, conclusive evidence uh, that these changes are pretty pervasive and, and happening in many, many parts of the world. In Tasmania, in your region of research, uh, what species yeah. or green changes have you studied and seen? Okay, so we've seen a whole lot of changes off the east coast of Tasmania. So we have a rate of warming that's around four times the global average. So off the east coast of Tasmania, we get the underlying warming that most of the rest of the ocean gets, but we also have a change in current system. So that east Australian current that pushes down the east coast of Australia, the, the current that brought Nemo's dad cruising down the coast in the, in the Disney movie, um, that's speeding up and pushing down our coast faster and stronger as a function of warming in the atmosphere. Um, so that current, uh, you know, brings with it a different temperature. It also brings um, nutrient-poor subtropical waters to sit off our coast instead of, instead of cooler temperate waters. Um, and we're seeing uh, a whole range of new species. We've got uh, new octopus species. There's a range-shifting lobster, a new lobster that's coming into our region. There's a whole range of fish. There's about 100 different species that we've seen move into that region and of course we're losing some species as well so 95 percent of our giant kelp for example um, has disappeared off the coast of Tasmania and that's for a range of complicated reasons we've got the warming waters um, we've got the nutrient poor waters and there's also a range shifting urchin that has moved into the area the long spined urchin um, that is eating a whole lot of plant material. The urchins surviving in much larger numbers now. Um, they literally eat all the plant material in a region and create what we call rocky urchin barrens. Um, and those barrens are not, you know, really favourable habitats for other, other species um, that we like to live in. So rock lobster and abalone are some of our really major fishery species here in Tasmania. Um, and they don't like the rocky urchin barrens so much. Um, so we have a whole lot of changes off our east coast as a result of the, the temperature change. Some new um, diseases and toxins have turned up as well uh, or are occurring much more frequently than they used to. Uh, the, other, the, other, um, the other sort of discussion that's been had, which uh, has been somewhat controversial, but um, is definitely worth having, is the, the concept of assisted translocation which is where we do the modeling, the species may itself lack the, um, the virgility, the natural dispersal ability needed to, um, to migrate into that location. 
but that we could potentially give them a helping hand. The problem with that is that, as, as I illustrated with the Arctic peregrines, is that ultimately you run out of options. And options are what conservationists are collecting as they build up these banks for animal and plant species. It is undeniable that as we humankind have expanded our home range, we have also whittled down space for all other species. And today, they're struggling. So against all odds, these genetic banks are their final hope. Linnaean. 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 Future. 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 Future.